Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published quarterly by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. On this week's show, premiering February 27, 2015, we'll be speaking with Mideast expert Alon Ben-Mir at the NYU Center for Global Affairs about his recent journal blog post, Choosing Between Promise or Peril, on Israel's pending elections and continuing struggle with the Palestinians. We'll also spotlight other top stories in the issue, but first some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the website West Wing Reports. Well, both the United States and Iran report progress in nuclear talks, but say much needs to be done as a deadline for an agreement looms. The U.S., Russia, China, Britain, France, and Germany, the so-called P5 plus one, are reportedly seeking a decade-long deal that would slow Iran's ability to produce enough highly enriched uranium for a nuclear weapon. Iran needs a deal which would ease crippling economic sanctions, but continues to deny that it seeks nuclear weapons, claiming its nuclear program is simply for peaceful energy production. White House officials this week continue to dampen expectations for a deal with Tehran, putting the odds at 50-50 at best. And in a sign, meantime, of ongoing distrust between the U.S. and Iran, a newly disclosed document from the National Security Agency shows how quickly the U.S. is speeding up its development of cyber weapons to use against possible enemies like Iran. The 2013 document describes how the U.S. was preparing increasingly sophisticated cyber surveillance and cyber warfare capabilities, but according to one person who has seen the document, it also shows, quote, how far behind we are in figuring out how to deter attacks and how to retaliate when we figured out who was behind them. Meantime, just how big a threat is the so-called Islamic State or ISIS? Even as some Americans worry, some analysts are talking about how the terror group has overplayed its hand, making too many enemies, losing its momentum. It was just last fall, for example, when Baghdad was said to be in danger of falling. That is no longer the case. And now Egypt and Jordan are actively fighting the terror group. This as the U.S. warns of a spring offensive to free the northern Iraqi city of Mosul. And when it comes to foreign policy, President Obama continues to get low marks. A Gallup survey says 36% of Americans approve of his handling of foreign affairs. That's up from 31% last fall. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. This family lost seven, and that family lost seven. The Israelis told them the home would be demolished by rockets. One was six years old, one was 70, and all ages in between. They got killed with airstrikes and rockets so that everyone in this house could be demolished. So what is the crime called? What would we call it legally? He who kills an entire family? Isn't this collective punishment? Genocide? This is called genocide. La même façon que tout le monde de la culture civilisée est aujourd'hui en train de se lever contre le monde de l'obscurantisme et du terrorisme, 
כך עליו להתייצב עם ישראל נגד הטרור. זהו בדיוק אותו טרור. Two notable milestones or millstones on the path to another crossroads for Middle East peace. Within days of one another, Palestinian leader Mahmoud Abbas signed papers seeking recognition by the world court for expected charges against Israeli military actions. And Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu at the Grand Synagogue of Paris linked his country's endless conflict with the Palestinians directly to that city's horrifying Charlie Hebdo massacre. Despite that proclaimed peril, however, Netanyahu urged French Jews to find peaceful new lives in Israel. Neither man's ploy seemed to improve prospects for peace as Israel headed towards early Knesset elections and, quote, the last chance for years to come to move both parties towards coexistence. That's according to an article on the World Policy Journal blog by Dr. Alon Ben-Mir, a professor of international negotiations and Middle Eastern studies at the NYU Center for Global Affairs. The piece is headlined, Choosing Between Promise or Peril, and I talked with him earlier about it and related pieces he's posted. Dr. Ben-Mir, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thank you. My pleasure. My pleasure. You say both sides have to recognize that neither can have it all, a dangerous goal that psychiatrist Robert J. Lifton calls an atrocity-producing situation. Explain how that and uh, the related Lifton concept of totalism uh, figure in the Israeli-Palestinian struggle. Well, you see, uh, totalism as uh, being understood, uh, that neither Israeli, certainly, and not the Palestinian, can have all the territories, that is, all of Palestine, as we know it, from the Mediterranean all the way to the uh, Jordan River. That, and that is impossible by the simple fact on the ground. That is, Israelis exist there, and so do the Palestinians. Their existence is irrevocable, cannot be changed short, in my view, of a, a catastrophic event. Hence, both sides must come eventually to the conclusion that since coexistence is inevitable in one form or another, they must choose between living in peace and prosperity or continue to hate each other or kill each other for another 10, 15, 20 years. But in the end of the day, nothing really will change other than more dead people, more destruction, and no future for the next generation. Since we began with a clip of Abbas, talk about some of the ways you say Palestinians damage their own cause more than Israel or any outside power. This is, this is actually the, the problem that has been also with the Israelis, I might say. Over the last, you know, since the creation of the State of Israel and the Palestinian refusal to accept the United Nations partition plan, from the Israelis' perspective, the Palestinian never came to the conclusion or accepted the idea that there's going to be a Jewish state sitting there side by side. What they have done over the almost seven decades basically perpetuated various notions, including the right of return for the Palestinians, the, uh, the unacceptance of Israel as a Jewish state, and perpetuated that through continuing, consistent public narratives. As a result, they have passed, you might say, they are the victimhood that they have experienced in 1948, 
as a result of the uh, refugee problems that were pushed out or, or by, by Israel and sometimes even encouraged to leave, that problem is perpetuated. And as a result, they have actually created three, four generations of victims. That is, they pass the victimhood of what they call a Nakba, the catastrophe, to four generations. So what you see today, young Palestinians, even at the age of 10, 12, they talk about a Nakba as if they were themselves experiencing. And that is really a, one of the core problems that the Israeli, that the Palestinians have, have now must face. And if they want to change the dynamic, they must begin to change their public narrative and begin to talk about Israel as an entity that is going to have to exist with them. What impact do you see from Palestinian moves for recognition at the UN and the World Court? Well, you know, I think this is, uh, you might, I call it the move of desperation. In a way, to the extent that Mahmoud Abbas was sincere about his search for equitable peace with Israel, what the Netanyahu has, got, has done over at least the last six years, the truth is that the Netanyahu has not given the Palestinian any hope that, in fact, Israel, or Netanyahu, I should say, is seeking a two-state solution. So we have seen the twice major negotiations sponsored by the United States that have taken place, and both sets of negotiations collapsed. I cannot tell you that only the Israelis can be blamed. But I do say, however, that Israel, being the more powerful party in this negotiation, could have, should have done a number of things to facilitate the process. In particular, I think the Netanyahu government should have stopped or freeze at least the settlement expansion. Because from the, from the Palestinian perspective, you can't really talk about two-state solution when you continue to encroach upon their territories uh, these land on which they expect to build their own state. I think this was one of the biggest impediments to making any progress in the peace process. The split between the Fatah party of Abbas and the more extremist Hamas continues to plague the Palestinians, you wrote. Uh, did you see no improvement in their April 2014 reconciliation agreement? And the truth is very little, if any. The rivalry between the two sides have been and will continue to be for some time to come. But the rivalry is not simply for power, but also this ideological huge gap between the two sides. Whereas, in my view, the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank accepted the principle of coexisting with the State of Israel. Hamas has not come to the same conclusion. Hence, Hamas being able to undermine, to torpedo, you might say, the peace process directly and indirectly, because I've made it impossible for, for Mahmoud Abbas to make the kind of concession needed in order to reach an agreement with Israel. And that is, that is one of the big problems we face. That is, I welcome the unity government, and I thought perhaps this could facilitate the process, but even though the unity between Hamas and Fatah took place. Hamas did not change its ways. And as you recall, the three, two Hamas and three Hamas operatives in the West Bank, uh, you know, kidnapped the three Israeli boys and shot them to death. 
Uh, and that is really only demonstrate that Hamas was not willing to adhere to the unity agreement and would that eventually precipitate the last um, war between Israel and Hamas. Even if there were a will, is there a way? Does the leadership of either or both Palestinian parties have the power really needed to end or significantly suppress the kind of attacks on Israel that mostly bring more deadly counterstrikes? Or is that always lopsided toll of dead and injured uh, really become central to a Palestinian image of uh, of victimhood? Well, you see, uh, there's something in my view much deeper than that, and that is what I call the psychological dimension of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. That is, even if there is today a goodwill on both sides to sit down and negotiate the difficult issues, be that the future of Jerusalem, the future of the Palestinian refugees, Israel national security, and all of these very difficult issues, eventual borders. The problem is that the public, both Israelis and the Palestinians, have not been prepared over these many decades to the kind and concession of concessions needed, required, in order for them to reach some kind of an agreement. So what happens when you have this historic account which is distorted? Both have different historic accounts. A deep religious differences between the two sides. So there's tremendous gap in terms of their, how they perceive each other, the hatred to one another. And all of that has been regularly day in and day out convey to their respective public. As a result, if the public is not prepared to make concessions, even if they agree on peace agreement, it will be extraordinarily difficult to come and surprise the Palestinians, surprise Israeli, for example, by saying, well, no Palestinian actually could go back to Israel because this is simply is not going to happen. Or for the Israelis to, to, to accept the fact that Jerusalem eventually will have to be a capital of two states. So this is the problem. If you want to reach an agreement, you're going to have to change the Israeli and the Palestinian public perception about where they are, what they are, what they can aspire for that is realistic and is doable. Just a brief break here to say this is World Policy on Air. Now back to NYU Mideast expert Alon Ben-Mir. So it was no help for Netanyahu to lump Palestinian attacks with their long special history uh, along with the Charlie Hebdo massacre. Uh, absolutely. You know, uh, I think Netanyahu is, uh, I, I dare say, uh, he is really a demagogue. He, he is a hypocrite. I mean, he can go to, to to France and urge the Jews to immigrate to Israel because Israel presumably is more secure. When, in fact, the statistics show that 80 times, I repeat the number, 80 times more Israelis were killed in Israel itself over the last 25 years than all of the Jews that were killed by various terrorist actions in all of Europe. So, so what, we are, what I'm saying then, you know, Israel is not necessarily a safe place. The Netanyahu policies itself, in my view, has been evoking, provoking anti-Semitism, or at a minimum contributing to it. You know, after all, anti-Semitism was the Jews from time immemorial. But when you have a government like the Israeli government, who is doing what he's doing in this various in the territory, who is continuing the occupation. It has a created international perception that it is the Israel who is the putting the major stumbling block in the peace process. And as a result, what we see is less support for Israel throughout Europe 
And in fact, there is also a deterioration in the support of Israel, even in the United States, specifically among the young, and more particularly among American Jews, young Jews, who are usually the candidate to, to, to immigrate to Israel. So as a result, you know, Israeli policies have been major, major problem in the deterioration, not only Israel standing in the international community, but also is impacting on the Jewish, on the Jews, wherever they live. And I think anti-Semitism, to, to some extent, without any question, is, as I said before, provoked by these policies. And there is a change. We cannot expect the intensity of anti-Semitism to subside anytime soon. Since we've touched on uh, unrelated uh, spread of terrorism, let me ask you if uh, or how you see the rise of the Islamic State, uh, the fall in oil prices, uh, the fear of a nuclear Iran, other new developments in the region affecting the prospects for an Israeli-Palestinian rapprochement. Has ISIS overkill put Israel and other states in the region more in line? Well, I think so. I think ISIS overkill. Uh, they have made a, a, a terrible mistake, which is, which I welcome these type of mistakes. Uh, but for example, um, you know, behaving people, which is atrocious things to watch, by burning the Jordanian, for example, the pilot. What they have done actually provoke this tremendous amount of of anger and outrage uh, throughout the Middle East and invited, as a result, other countries to rethink their position vis-a-vis -vis the ISIS and decided to take much more decisive action against them. Jordan is obviously one of them. But I must say, however, with all of these conflicts, our conflict, be that in Iraq, with ISIS, in Syria, within the Assad regime, the rebels, as well as ISIS, the Iran effort to acquire a nuclear weapon, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, there is interconnection between all, all of this. And if that is, if you want to begin any kind of process to resolve some of these horrible conflicts, you have to start where probably it's the easier one. And uh, ironically, I still believe the easier one would have been, or should have been, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Because from day one, we know one thing, that it has reverberated throughout the Middle East. I maintain that Hezbollah would not have come to being had it not been for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the Israeli invasion of Lebanon. I maintain that Hamas would not have come to being had this Israeli-Palestinian conflict been resolved. This is not the exclusive problem or the mistake of the Israelis. It's, of course, of the Palestinians. But the longer this conflict continues, the more problems, the more greater conflicts, they feed into other conflicts. And so, therefore, we can have to focus. The United States, in my view, have made, uh, has, has had the good intention to try to resolve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but it has not approached it in a manner that it made it possible to do so. So, again, this, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict will continue to reverberate throughout the Middle East. And as a result, we are going to also see the, the Iran ambitions in the region, ISIS ambitions in the region, sooner or later they will also come much closer to the Israeli interest, which is already, when Jordan gets involved, that means Israel is indirectly is involved, because Israel is ultimately the guarantor, you might say, 
of Georgian national security. If Georgian is in trouble, Israel will be involved in that conflict. You argue there could be a key role for the Arab Peace Initiative, or API, introduced by Saudi Arabia in 22. Uh, remind us what that involved, beginning with recognition of Israel and the right of return, perhaps the touchiest issue for both sides. Well, the, the Arab Peace Initiative called for the return of the territories captured in 1967. It calls for the return of the refugees, and they find a just solution to the refugees implying clearly that the refugees cannot really go back to Israel other than a few thousand, uh, the establishment of a Palestinian state. And if this were to take place, the all-Arab world plus the Muslim world, 54 different countries, will immediately or almost immediately establish uh, diplomatic relations with the state of Israel. I, not only myself, but I know uh, there is a huge constituency in Israel, particularly from the military, the intelligence, the academia, and many ordinary people who believe that the Arab Peace Initiative was and remains central, in my view, to Israeli-Palestinian peace process. Many Israeli governments, both labor and left center, have made, in my view, terrible mistakes since 2002 by not embracing the Arab Peace Initiative. And is the API still viable with a new king of Saudi Arabia? I think it's probably, and that might sound ironic, but uh, the truth is I think it is probably more relevant today than it ever was. And that is because Saudi Arabia, the Gulf state in particular, see much more eye-to-eye with Israel than ever before because of the shared enemy, which is Iran. I can tell you today that there is far greater cooperation between Israel and all of the Gulf states, a matter of intelligence and other level of cooperation, which is between the two sides, particularly because of the Iranian threat. So for the, for the Arab state, this is an, an, an incredible, momentous opportunity. If Israel were to accept the Arab Peace Initiative, they will immediately jump. And, and try and make peace with the state of Israel. And that is why I think this is a, a golden opportunity, I might say even historic opportunity for Israel to move forward. Because if Israel is to say it is willing to embrace the Arab initiative, then the, the Arab state, specifically the Saudi, will put tremendous pressure on the Palestinians to make the kind of concession necessary. They will also they will isolate Hamas particularly because Hamas is, if Hamas does not embrace it, the Arab Peace Initiative, they will basically remain totally and completely isolated from the Arab world. And that is why I think Israel is being very short-sighted by not looking at it anew and make a decision that this can be the basis for the resumption of serious negotiation that could lead to a comprehensive Israeli-Arab peace. Final question, do you see any likely winner of the Israeli elections willing and able to work with the API or in any way break free of recent Israeli policy? Well, let me, let me suggest first that if Netanyahu forms the next um, government, the peace process will be dead as long as he is a prime minister. Certainly, if Bennett, Naftali Bennett, joins such a government, almost in any capacity, he will paralyze. Netanyahu and will not allow him, for example, to freeze the settlement. So, so if we are going to talk about any potential of resumption of negotiation, 
We're going to have to have the government from center and left of center, which is led by Herzog. Herzog has the, the can take different kind of steps, different kind of approach to Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, it is not going to be easy, but at the minimum, he has the goodwill and the intention to move toward a, a peace process. And without any question, the chances will be much, much better. Uh, still, it's going to be very difficult. It will take some time, but it is doable, and it can happen. Professor Ben-Mir, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Anytime. Professor Alon Ben-Mir teaches international negotiations and Middle Eastern studies at NYU Center for Global Affairs. World Policy Journal blogged his piece, Choosing Between Promise or Peril. Also featured in the current issue of World Policy Journal, you'll find articles on Sweden as stronghold of the North, on Italy's secret glue, and a conversation between Portugal's liberal lion, Mario Suarez, and World Policy Journal editor, David Andelman. Plus, tune into next week's podcast as we talk with Tunis-based journalist Simon speakman Cordal on the why and how of choosing jihad and what might be done to stop it. World Policy On Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor-publisher David Andelman, managing editor Yafra Frederick, online news editor and podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.